Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 113. I'm Ken, and I'm here with my co-host, Donna. Joining us on the podcast this week is Indianapolis-based architect, Laura Teagarden. Laura is with Ratio Architecture and L-Squared Design. This week on the holiday episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about three news items from the Archonnect website. The first is a piece about the architecture firm, William Caven. They unveiled a design for the uh, tallest Portland building, a speculative piece. Second will be the LA Times critic, Christopher Hawthorne, and his piece, Are You Bored Yet? And lastly, a news item from the uh, failed architecture website regarding an interview they did with OMA partner, Rainer de Graff. Architecture is in a state of denial. So I am really happy that Laura is finally able to join us. Laura and I have been good friends and served together with AIA for many years now, and I'm really happy that we finally got our schedules together and we got you onto the podcast. Welcome, Laura. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, as you alluded to, I hail from the same wonderful city of Indianapolis. I work as a project architect at Ratio Architects. I also have my own small design business on the side, which is not anything of major note from an architecture perspective, but it's the umbrella under which I've published the so far two airy sketches study guides, which are basically visual illustrations of the written study material for the different tests that you have to take to get your license. And you sell them as study guides, basically. This was your own study guide that you turned into a study guide that other people can use. Correct. So I took the written material from the different book publishing study people like Ballast and Kaplan and that kind of stuff, um, and took all of that written verbiage and turned it into multiple visual sketches. Each one has a single thought to it. So you should be able to understand it within like 15 to 30 seconds. So each book is basically a compilation of those sketches that span an entire section of a test. Awesome. And they're really beautiful little books. I, I love them too. And I know they've been popular. So the other thing I'll say is that Laura has taught me as a, can we call you a millennial? Laura, are you a millennial? I'm technically the early end of the bracket. So like okay. I'm yeah, I'm technically in the millennial phase. I'm in this weird place where I could straddle Gen X millennial. Right. Yeah. Because I'm solidly Gen X. Almost some people would say that I'm moving into boomer. But I would say that Laura has taught me so much about social media and how to use social media and just how to also not screw up my tweets and things. But um, <laughs> that that actually, I think, relates really nicely to this first news item that we wanted to talk about. So on Arconnect this week, Hope Daily wrote a uh, report that said, and it's a little bit confusing, so bear with me. It basically said, William Caven Architecture in Portland has unveiled their design for the tallest building in Portland. And it's a very glossy rendering of a very crazy looking double tower that's linked by a sky bridge in between. And people immediately started responding with like criticism and questions and concerns about the fault, you know, the earthquake problems in the Portland area. And I asked the question, what is this actually a response to? Because the Unveiling didn't really just kind of read as a press release more than as any kind of response to an actual project that might exist in the world. So I had to do a little bit of digging. And it turns out that 
There is currently in Portland an RFQ out. It just went out, I think, in early November called Prosper Portland. And Prosper Portland is an RFQ for a master plan for a 32-acre development on the site of the old post office in the Pearl District, right next to the river in Portland. And so this call for requalifications to developers has gone out. But what I think has happened is William Cave and Architecture had this cool design for a skyscraper, and they submit put it out into the world as like a press release saying, hey, wouldn't this be a great project to end up on that site. The rendering of it, I'll point out, and this is maybe what confused me the most about it, was the rendering looks like just a generic cityscape. It doesn't appear that the building actually sits in Portland, Oregon. And so that's why I was asking, is this just a an idea they decided to wedge into this RFQ or is this a real proposal? I don't know. It confused me a little bit. So Ken, did you have something you wanted to comment about? Yeah, I think it should be noted that uh, William Caven is um, a brother. Uh, there are two brothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not like one guy. When I saw the name, I thought I was like, who's this William Caven Oh, okay. Guy? I didn't realize that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Did you uh, live in Portland for a while? or I lived in Portland for quite a while. My parents lived there for 20 years. So yeah, I knew the city fairly well up until about 10 years ago. And nothing about the, you know, I there's no question to me about whether this should or be built or, you know, we can critique it as a building just because it's kind of a funny design. But the question it raised for me was how as architects do we promote ourselves? And it reminded me, you know, part of me was thinking, this is this proposal that some architect guy just threw out there as self-promotion. And then I started remembering that one of the things that influenced me greatly about 12 years ago in architecture was Bjarke Ingels saying that his firm, Big, did this proposal that was to do housing around a soccer field. So there's a soccer field in the city of Copenhagen. You know, there's not nearly enough housing in the city. And so they they just came up with, out of on their own, this proposal to ring a soccer field with this landscape of housing. And then they started pushing it to politicians, to the newspaper, to neighborhood groups, you know, showing it around and saying, look at how we could develop this city if we were to think creatively. And eventually notion got adopted and it became an actual project that the city backed and a different architect was awarded the commission. So, uh, you know, part of me says, well, we as architects, we shouldn't only be reactive. We should be promoting ideas that we think are good, whether there's an actual project there or not. And maybe someone who can fund it can then come in and and make it a reality. And then part of me says, oh, it's just self-promotion. So I don't know, Laura, you being so versed in the social media and sort of aware of how we do need to promote ourselves differently from how people in my generation and older would have? What would you, do you have some comments you want to say about this? Well, I mean, my first question would be, I haven't been to Portland. It's on the list, but you having lived there, is this feasible? Like my general understanding of Portland is that they would not appreciate a building this tall. (laughs) I think, again, I go back to I think it was the late 80s, the building that was built there called Big Pink. They refer to it as Big Pink, and it was the tallest building in the city, and it was enormously taller than anything else, and it's clad in pink reflective glass and pink granite. And, you know, people joked about it at first, and now it's a beloved part of the skyline. I mean, I think any city would say, oh, we don't need anything that tall, well, except for like New York or Shanghai. But any city would also then come to love the thing that... And this thing is iconic. I mean, it's a big double-towered double two towers that are connected up at like the 40th or 60th floor by a bridge that apparently is a a bioclimate in the bridge to connect the two buildings. So, you know, think big, right? But I mean, (laughs) is it iconic or is it just a modern day version of ideas that we've seen throughout time? Um, I mean, if if you, if you scale, if you scale, if you scale up, we've already seen this. I mean, 
You see it at the Bridge of Sighs in Venice, the Ponte Vecchio in Florence. I mean, Florence has a ton of bridges that connect buildings. Oxford made their own Bridge of Sighs. And then I'm trying to think of the name. Wilkinson Air, I think, did the modern version of the Bridge of Sighs that connects the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. Mm-hmm. Um, Shop just did a bridge uh, in East Manhattan. So shop, you know, kind of is the scale up of that. You know, there's tons of this stuff in Asia. Um, oh God, yeah. So is it is it iconic or is it just a continuation of things we're seeing? I mean, the the structure based on it and that corner, how it's lit up, Im- immediately reminded me of Hearst Tower in New York City. So I'm not entirely certain whether it's iconic or whether it's a continuation of an idea. So it's interesting because one, it does exceed zoning constraints. Zoning limits uh, heights of buildings in this area to, I think, 400 feet. So it doubles exactly or exceeds by twice uh, the scale of the existing zoning. But I just want to read William, one of the brothers, put out a a letter to the editor, um, which I'll Oh, I didn't see this. Yeah, October 10th. (laughs) And I just want to read the the last two paragraphs, if I could. It's not long. It'll kind of point to where I'm going in some of my criticism. The city of Portland currently is devoid of iconic buildings at least any that a tourist or foreign architect might recognize. It is easily established that great buildings drive tourism and generate money. Every year, millions of people make trips to destination cities just to see towers, memorials, skyscrapers, and art institutes. These destination monuments, such as the Space Needle Freedom Tower, One World Trade Center, Empire State Building, or Eiffel Tower, generate millions of dollars in operating revenue and collateral business for surrounding hotels, restaurants, tour groups, not to mention income, blah, 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 blah. 2016, Space Needle hosted more than a million visitors, number one attraction in the Pacific Northwest. Eiffel Tower has been declared the most valuable monument. You can see where this is kind of going, right? So, yeah. yeah. Guggenheim Museum Bilbao, <laughs> not a tall building at all, but an iconic one, attracted 4 million tourists in the first three years of existence. There was an executive summary. So I can go on and on and on and write. So one, the, Laura asks a great question. Is this an iconic building? Uh, given that we already know there's several of these things out there with these re- stupid sky bridges. Second, when I saw when I saw this building and I'm like, and I was reading Donna's comment in the email and I, then I read this and I'm, you know, searching around for you, what the hell is going on with this thing? Yeah. You know what, who it reminded me of? And, and I went to their website and it, their website even like further I mean, it really kind of like resonated. I'm like, oh my God, these guys are Jonathan Siegel graduates. And I don't know if they are or not. Oh, huh. I don't know if yeah. they're not. But the work really, their work very much situates themselves in the way they, their presentation style with this particular letter to the editor, really very strong in like their self-promotion about their own like place in history and about their, their iconicism in this particular building. I mean- but what galled me the most about this this particular letter, <laughs> which is absolutely fucking stunning, was the idea that they were going to use the Freedom Tower as a means for driving what was important. I mean, you could use any building in the world. You don't get to use the Freedom Tower. The Freedom Tower was born out of a fucking horrific attack. Thousands of people died. You don't get to use the Freedom Tower as a statement for your capitalist bullshit. <laughs> and I'm so- not... It just it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe. And, you know, I mean, I'm not a big fan of, is it um, Michael Gray's building is, is, is there, right? Yeah. Did I miss yeah. something? Was that like taken off the iconic buildings list? 
<laughs> Did it get destroyed in, my, in the time we talked to a couple of people in our podcast in the past couple of years? Did it get somehow taken down? I mean, I don't know. Well, no one's traveling to Portland. I mean, no one would travel to Portland to see this building, but no one's traveling to Portland to see the Portland building either, except for architects. And many of them are only traveling there to laugh at it. Well, so, <laughs> but it is, I'm sorry. I love that building, but... Uh, but it is featured in Portlandia, you know, right? Oh, I don't I don't watch Portlandia, so yeah. Well, I think it's featured in Portlandia, at least in the credits. <laughs> We've already got one ugly building in Portland. I don't know if we need another ugly building in Portland, one dedicated to Fortune 100 company, no less, <laughs> and one that even the editors, the editors are going, why do we need this to attract Amazon? You mean the Amazon company that's in Seattle? Somehow Portland is going to get that $5 billion investment. But in a way, just the fact of this conversation is what's driving me crazy about this question of, you know, we are all treating this building as if it's a serious proposal. And I don't know that it actually is. And I I will go back again to big. And maybe it says something about Bjarke Ingels as a salesman that he's the one I keep thinking of. You know, the the Ren building they proposed that looked like a like the figure for people in Chinese and he featured it. There's this beautiful fly through and all this. It was one of the first things that sort of put him on the map. The Ren building was originally designed on a much smaller scale to be on the harbor in Copenhagen. And then when that RFQ or request for proposals for the Ren building site in China showed up, they just scaled it up by 20 times and plopped it into the surroundings and the rendering and submitted it. And then it became, you know, sort of world famous. So my sense is that that's kind of what's going on with this building. This is a cool rendering, regardless of if it's a real building or not, or has the possibility of being one. It's a cool looking rendering that hits on the current trends in architecture. And I think they could plunk it down in any city at all. And with the Portland post office proposal. They just said, hey, let's put it here and see what happens. And what I'm questioning is, is that bad or good for architects to do that, to try to insert themselves earlier into the process of proposed new ideas? So I think it's important for the architect to be a part of that early conversation, because then you can have that impact on what's going on in that city or that location. Now, This is not that, especially if you're just taking a rendering and plopping it on a site ad hoc and not thinking about the context of what's going on. So there's different. And when Ken mentioned Jonathan Siegel, my temperature just rose like 100 degrees. So there's a completely different conversation of how you promote yourself. And I think it's a valid one to have for this because it's good for architects to be in those early conversations if we want meaningful design to happen in our cities. But simply just throwing out an idea that does not really aid the context, I don't know that that is good PR. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think, um, I I think this is a cynical attempt at driving the discussion and driving business to the firm. I mean, hey, like I said, I mean, that's why it struck me as a Jonathan Siegel kind of effort, because he's such a self-promoting, you know, so you were getting what you pay for when you work with that that particular type of person. And this really just when I saw that this was basically a brief without a brief, this was... An idea really kind of cynically positioned around something that wasn't really proposed yet that they then were able to, because of this idea, drive a discussion and then 
drive a an RFQ. They didn't plop down a, a beautiful idea in a part of Portland that desperately needed additional affordable housing. They didn't do anything like that. They proposed an idea to help a global company to try to drive a discussion around bringing global company to their, bring $5 billion of development to Portland. And then they tack on to that, oh, by the way, but this is a great way to get a bullet train from Los Angeles to <laughs> Seattle. And every time I hear about the bullet train on the West Coast, I'm always going back 25 years to the movie Singles. And I remember oh, the character God, yes. in Singles just driving and was working hard and, and just every time, and it always came down to that one. And it's still, 25 years later, it still comes down to that one, that one thing that just gutted him and gutted the project. People like to drive. People love their cars. <laughs> Uh, but this, when I read this letter to the other, I couldn't loathe a firm more <laughs> than, than this one, just based on that, just based on the pretentiousness of the letter alone, thinking that somehow this building is somehow the next Eiffel Tower, the next Guggenheim Bilbao. I mean, it just was, I mean, wow. Yeah, that's a bit much. Uh, a bit. <laughs> I mean, you have to be, I, I said to, I think I said to Laura, Last week, I was talking with an architect and it reminded me that I think in, to be successful in this profession, in a way, you almost have to have an outsized ego. Like, you know, I, I was talking to someone who just I was so proud of themselves and it, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I've done, but I just don't have that kind of ego, I guess. So it takes all types. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that is a good marker too, right? This feels like a relatively young firm. I think I know of the the partners there. They were working in the Portland area when I had a friend working there who's since moved back to Indianapolis. And so they left where they were and started this firm. So it makes me wonder how much of that is the ego that has to be there to make the noise to generate work. Right. Kind of like how star architects who have money from their parents can just sit at home and do competitions until they get that big break that makes a lot of noise, you know? Right. Right. And I don't remember enough of Bjarke's early career to remember if he was also this way, but he, we now can see that, you know, he backs up his mouth, you know, like he has exactly that exactly. strength. Yeah. So yeah. there's a piece to that, that from a marketing and how you gain projects perspective, you kind of have to be loud in some ways. And God, you can have a whole gender talk about why that is more beneficial for guys, but... <laughs> and how it manifests as a skyscraper. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, uh. No, and, and that's the thing. I mean, if you look at Bjarke's projects, for the, for the most part, they're large in scale. I mean, I can't recall too many single family homes or small scale projects for, for um, small groups of people. I, um, it just, this firm is, is relative, it's a small firm. I mean, it, their, their projects are small there, even if they, you know, even if they exceed a couple of stories, they're still relatively small. This is, this is a scale of a project that's way outside what they've done. They haven't, they haven't proven anything and they're going to have to partner with some other firm. And, and again, I, I think, you know, you know, it's exciting. It certainly is not boring. I mean, it is. It's really, it's ostentatious. It's, it's nice in a, in a way. It's reminiscent of various things um, that we've talked about already, but it's certainly not boring. And then they don't sound like boring guys. So more power to them. But I just think I just, and at the same time, I just, I'm just kind of like side-eyeing them a bit. So. <laughs> yeah. Side-eyeing is actually a good way to describe it. Cause yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna slam on someone for 
seeing an opportunity and saying, look, we could not only do this thing that will bring people to our city, it'll also tie into the bullet train or whatever, the, you know, the whatever transit system, it'll also do all these other things. I don't want to shut down people who have those kinds of ideas because we are as architects supposed to think holistically and think bigger picture than just this one building on this one site. But I'm not sure that this, that this proposal, uh, hits. It does strike me as a little, a little, a little more self-promotion. And again, more power to him though. Like you said, more power to him. Speaking of boring architecture, and thank you, Ken, for using that phrase. I think you were thinking about me. One article I loved this week, and I tweeted it, was Christopher Hawthorne's article this week in the LA Times called Boring Architecture. Yes, please. (laughs) He basically talks about some uh, an ongoing aesthetic, and I think there's more to this discussion than just, oh, this is the new style, but he talks about an ongoing aesthetic trend he's seeing of buildings that are not what he calls testosterone-fueled form-making, but are using much more quiet Euclidean forms and simple quality materials. Christopher Hawthorne calls this boring architecture. I would use the term quiet, which I think is much better than boring, because I don't think something that's very well-made and has great quality and really sort of speaks to a, a physical and poetic part of people, I don't find that boring. So I would rather use the word quiet. Some of the character that he explains this kind of architecture with is he says that it is not about skin. It's not about a flashy skin. It's more about a mass, like a quiet mass of material. It's not, so it's not just skin deep. He's, he calls these people that are practicing in this way, the new Euclideans. And again, that might be, I think, a little bit oversimplified, but I, I, it, it's a nice idea. I love this kind of work, this kind of very quiet, like John Pawson, Edward Larrabee Barnes, that kind of, of quiet, but very resonant modernism. But I can't help but wonder if calling it boring architecture and sort of trying to pigeonhole it into this one movement, if that isn't just going back to an idea of the modern movement when it started originally, their attitude was there is only one way to make architecture and it is this way, right? It It was absolutely do or die. You have to make architecture that is this style. And I don't really think anyone wants us as a discipline to be shackled into a a style that we all have to say we have to do work only in this way. I mean, Schumacher wants to do that, yes. (laughs) And I would say most of the winners of the Driehaus, the Richard Driehaus Prize at Notre Dame that they give out for classical architecture every year. I imagine most of those architects would like everyone to design in the same style. But I just, you know, I don't, I feel like calling out this kind of very good quality work and sort of categorizing it already as a movement, boring architecture. I I don't think that's right, but I do love this kind of work. So I'm happy to see it get some some praise. What do you guys think? It seems like there's some conversation. And I read the article when you tweeted it, and I'm trying to remember it. He spoke a little bit about what was going on at the Chicago Biennial as well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I have not seen it. Ken, didn't you stop through and see it? I did. And that's what that was the weird thing about this piece, this particular piece, because the one criticism and discussion that seems to be resonant through through a lot of critics about the biennial was this return of postmodernism. So this quiet seems really uh, in stark contrast to the criticisms and the work that I saw at uh, the biennial. It certainly wasn't by any means quiet or even boring. It certainly had a point of view. Um, I just didn't see it in that way. It didn't have the the kind of solidity and the quiet and the, and the restraint. It was certainly in many ways direct contrast to that. So yeah, I thought that, um, you know, I wonder about, about this kind of 
more of this and less of that. I mean, I like this as another type of architecture. Yeah, as another type, right? That's what's key to me. It's another type. It's a way of practicing architecture. One of many. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you ever find this when you're when you're outside walking and, and you're in a particular, just even a, a headspace, a particular headspace, and things start to slow down. The world, you catch the the, the leaves on the trees differently and, and your observations are, there's a clarity and some, you know, you're, you're seeing the, instead of the, the leaves on the tree, you're seeing the leaf on the tree. You know what I mean? There's um, something very thoughtful in, in Sometimes I catch myself and it happens where I'm like, I'm, I see everything for the singularity and not for the, like, you know, the world coming at me. And I, I guess I, I do appreciate that. But I was wondering, because I think some of the, there was some criticism about this piece out there from others that, you know, no, <laughs> no, the, we don't need more born. You know, and I wonder, is this, is this the, is the criticism does it have some measure of validity in that, you know, the world is a, and I don't want to break, I can't, I think what I'm struggling with, with this is that I wonder if everything comes back to, you know, how we live as architects and, and, and white people live in the world where they can cut out and carve out this space of quiet or boring. We have that sense of privilege where we could slow things down, where the world will like bend to our will. And there's, you know, there's so many opportunities uh, for us to do that because of who we are. And I, I can't imagine, you know, there's much slowness or sense of quiet if you're uh, an, an African-American or person walking down the street. You don't have those experiences. So I'm wondering, yeah, some of this is good and, and it seems mostly situated for a lot of it, it seems situated in kind of residential, but uh, be willing to hear more on it. Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit on something about the the pace of things that I think I remember him mentioning, and I'm trying to find it in the article right now. But I have been thinking about for a while, and it seems like a lot of architects are thinking about as it relates to technology increasing the pace of our lives and people trying to carve out those times and spaces where you can force the pace to slow down. Oh, here it is. It says, he said, replace pace with form. And Baker's critique of playwriting could be a critique of architecture over the last two decades. A boring building in 2017 is a building with something meaningful to say. To think of it merely as a pendulum swinging back toward a more balanced architecture is to underestimate it. It is also a wrecking ball, taking down a sensibility, a kind of machismo and self-satisfaction that desperately needs raising. (laughs) So I think there's a... There's a bit in here where it's talking about, there's a quote from Nicholas Pevsner where he says, you know, if the new style is bare, if it goes straight to the point, then there are reasons for it. And I believe that this is an old quote, but it's still something that I think a lot of people who enjoy modernist architecture understand because the bareness and the pace at which the building moves is such that every form has a purpose which means there's not a lot of flash and there's not a lot of stuff in your face. And yeah, you could take this to a whole cultural level of there's too much in our faces right now. Like we have, we have a president who will not shut up. (laughs) So, so there are definitely people trying to find ways to step back and slow down and I think that architecture is trying to do that in the same way. It's just that architecture takes longer for that pendulum to swing back than a person can. And Ken, your comment about 
whether this is something that we who are privileged can experience. I think about that a lot, especially as it relates to the minimalist movement too. There was a quote I heard, and I'm not going to remember who originally said it, but if you think about paraphrasing it, if you think about the idea of minimalism, it's that you can live a life with very few things around you because you have the money to buy that one thing that may serve five functions. Or if you decide that you need this one kitchen gadget, you might be able to go buy it. Whereas people of lesser incomes or less privileged circumstances, they're going to keep more things. They will never be a minimalist because they don't know when they might be able to replace whatever it is that you are freely throwing away. Exactly. I think there's a lot of meat to your comment, Ken, about what modernist architecture does in different worlds. But at the same time, I mean, we saw Francis Cray speak at AIA, and I would not say that his work is flashy by any sense of the imagination. I would put his work more into this, I think, this idea of being boring architecture. It uses minimal means. It uses local materials. It, it, you know, it, there's an efficiency there. Yeah. I mean, you're raising all very, very good points, but I do think that, that, th- and maybe this is why I just think that term boring architecture is so wrong. It's, yeah. it's not boring at all. Francis Curry's work is not boring. Johnson Markley's yeah. work is not boring. John, you know, I, the, the, the first building that came to my mind when I read this article was in Texas, Lake Flato did a cemetery building, a building at a cemetery. It's made out of these huge blocks of Texas uh, limestone or stone of some sort. And it's an incredibly quiet and thoughtful building. But you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, you, there's the luxury of it not needing to do anything more than be this small reception building at a cemetery. I guess to think about it more, I mean, he's an architecture critic writing for a paper that is read by more than just us as right. architects, right? right? So maybe he's using an unfortunate word, but it's a word that a non-architect would put towards that type of building. I mean, we thankfully are moving towards a time, I mean, I guess, depending on whether you like that style, but Scandinavian modernism and Japanese modernism is coming back into uh, popularity. So I think there are more lay people, for lack of a better term, non-architects who might appreciate it, but an average person might see a very clean, pristine, modernist building and just say, well, that's boring because they don't understand the movements of the form. And so maybe that's back where Scandinavian popularity is helping us, but we need to think about how we present that work so that people don't label it boring. That's an excellent point. And you're absolutely right that to non-architects, they will not look at a nice, simple Edward Larrabee Barnes peaked roof brick structure with minimal, minimal roof, you know, edging at the roof, uh, uh, like no fascia board, just this minimal little crisp edge. They don't see that that the enormous skill that is required to build something that well detailed. They only just see it as a very boring peaked roof. But Laura, I just, and Ken, I don't want to run over you. I don't want to not give you a chance to talk more, but it, it does remind me of a, a detail that you posted on Ratio's Instagram, I think, of, I think it was, it was in the Cummins building maybe, and it was a, a like a really well hidden pocket for a shade or something by a window. And you posted it and said, you know, getting this detail to be this invisible took so much work. Yeah. So that actually is for Indiana University's new School of Informatics down in Bloomington. It was my first 
full ratio project. I kind of saw it through just towards the end of DDs and I'm still kind of seeing it through CA, but not leading the CA in any way, shape or form. But that was a detail that I had to work through. And yet to get it that clean and to make that detail work because you're integrating lighting in that space, mechanical, all of those different things, it's something that a user will just be like, oh, the lights work. Whereas an architect. <laughs> exactly. An- yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, our lives are filled with those little details, especially in thoughtful architecture, right. uh, where, you're, where you're not using flash to cover up the details that you just didn't work out, right? Oh, God, totally. And maybe thoughtful architecture is a better term than boring architecture. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, I was thinking about when I was reading this piece. And I think he he touches on it just a little bit is that a lot of these architects that are doing this work now are products of the Great Recession because a lot of them graduated or were in school at the time. We're going, you know, don't forget this. The Great Recession is um, over 10, just about 10 years ago. So many of the of them that are building now have th- this is the work that is a product of that experience. And one of the things that I remember when I was going through that is that I was thinking about this idea of slow architecture, you know, just this return to the hand, you know, because it seemed like that capital was gone. Everything was gone. There was nothing happening. And we weren't using our computers because there was nothing to do. There was nothing to design. There was nothing. I'm sorry. There was nothing to build. So there was nothing for our computers to do. So I thought perhaps, and and you you've seen it. I mean, it's that idea has been borne out. We have the best, quote unquote, the best axe, the best this, and these are these handcrafted products sold in Brooklyn to hipsters who don't fucking chop wood anywhere. They're not chopping down <laughs> trees, or the best flannel jacket. You know, so there's this idea, this. And I think, you know, when when uh, when Mitch was talking about last week, I was trying to understand what she meant by pastoral, the pastoral, the pastoral. And I was like, wow, she's and I think there is some measure of that in this work. There is this this romantic, there's this nostalgia attached to these pieces. I mean, you know, when you hear Donna talk about Edward Larry Barnes, you could easily look at these as the as the polished brutalism. And that's what these yeah. projects really, yeah. when I look at some of the work, it really, I go, wow, wow, these are very solid, very grounded forms. They really like, they did something that they reverse what had happened in 2008. We were dislodged. <laughs> we were unearthed. We were picked up and thrown into the air by that, by that recession. And these projects seem to be an effort to reconstitute and reground the profession in a way that I'm wondering, is that where we are today? Or is that just, is this the the product of what they went through and this is what they've produced based on their experiences? So that's what I'm thinking about when I look at these, when I look at these projects, because I go, and I, you know, I talk about the cultural and I go, wow, that if you go to the National, the Museum for African-American History and Culture, that skin is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On that building. And I think there's there's richness in detail and there's 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 a quality and there's there's something that to that I don't think that's noisy and I don't think it's quiet either. I don't think it's no. slow. Yeah. I think yeah. there I think the idea I think what hasn't been done yet and I think you know when a white guy proclaims 
bunch of white guys are dead and these new people are taking over. Remember, it's a white guy saying it, then these old white guys are dead. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and now raising up this new level. So, but I look at that work and I think that what hasn't been done yet is how have we instituted kind of a parametricism to, and a thoughtful um, analysis and, and through generative forms dealing with issues that are, that really resonate with culture and community and people. We haven't done that yet. That hasn't been tried yet. So <laughs> before we move on to the, you know, the new brutalism or the new soft, <laughs> soft brutalism, <laughs> maybe we should like look at how can we leverage technologies that we have today to kind of inform and, and you know, take better advantage of making people's lives better. I just wanted to plug and and Ken, when you were talking about these this moment walking down the street, when you sort of feel this sense of, uh, you know, some people call it joy or the sublime or whatever, you know, this sense of it, it was practically word for word from the and I don't even know if you've read this book from the opening of Michael Benedict's for an architecture of reality, where he talks about the direct aesthetic experience of the real. When you see things as the objects they are, they don't signify anything else. They just exist as objects. And that those moments of viewing in that, seeing things in that light are tend to be incredibly joyful, beautiful experiences that make you feel good about the world, basically. <laughs> um, so anyone who loves this or likes this kind of architecture, be it boring or quiet or thoughtful or whatever, I would recommend to go find the Michael Benedict book, for an architecture of reality, which I have plugged many times on this show. And it turns out it's out of print now. And I think hard to get, I was seeing some quite expensive versions of it on eBay. So, but it's a great book and worth reading. <laughs> so, so yeah, I love quiet architecture. I love architecture that reveals how it's built, you know, that is about that as a content. I love it. Love it. From quiet architecture to mm -hmm. politics. <laughs> uh, to that's politics. where it all goes back. Yeah. To. <laughs> There's this uh, piece that's on Arconnect. It's uh, by Rainier de Graaf, partner at OMA. It's a piece in uh, failed architecture, and its architecture is in a state of denial. But it's based on his the, the it's a it's a basically an interview based on his kind of talking to him about his book Four Walls and a Roof, the complex nature of a simple profession. It's a this is a pretty heavy one, and I thought, wow, this is yeah, this is really 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 good. I mean, it really gets to the the meat of the question in architecture um, about, you know, who are we designing for <laughs> and how do we reconnect? How do we get past the developer, the private capital and reconnect architecture with the people um, and the community? And I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty intense um, and, and sorely needed. And, and interestingly enough, he goes on to point out that the book doesn't itself um, doesn't say anything about architecture and it's published, I think, by the same publisher who did Thomas Piketty's book. So it's really kind of situated. It has the editorial review of people who have uh, who are dealing with economics. So there's really it's a thoughtful presentation about architecture's failing and um, how we could possibly reconnect with uh, something that is actually meaningful. Donna, did you read this at all? I read it when it first came out, I think, on failed architecture. And that was a, a, a few Oh, maybe a week or so ago. And I have been thinking about it ever since then, but I can't, I, I kept meaning to start a, a thread on Arconnect about it, or at least just tweet about it some or talk about it on Facebook. I, I feel like it's a really important interview and really relevant to so many things right now, but I haven't been able to put my 
thoughts into any kind of order around it yet. Here, I'll put out some comments from the piece, some of the quotes, and then we can just talk about it that way. Because I think that's, it's really, some of the quotes I've highlighted could we could talk about for the, for the remaining portion. So one of the... One of the comments he has, and I think he's referencing architecture here, is that it serves not the happy many, but the happy few. It's it's the same architecture in the context of a different system. I don't think anyone who practices modern architecture is even vaguely aware of this. They were all educated with Le Corbusier and Gropius, and they consider themselves the heirs of those heroes when they actually operate in a system where they are complicit in things completely at odds with the ideals of that movement and those heroes. Exactly. Oh, God. It's crushing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and then he goes on to talk about how modernism was born out of an idea of using materials more efficiently so that we could house more people. And now, to go back to what you were saying earlier, Laura, about the luxury of minimalism, you know, now we build things as efficiently and minimally as possible so that a developer can pocket more money (laughs) off of the project so his profit margins are higher. And then the, the only people that can afford to live there are the ones who can afford to not have to keep every sweater they've ever owned because if they want a new one, they just go buy one, right? Like, <laughs> oh, it's a hard topic, but it's it's so, in a way, he's, Rainer de Graff is just laying bare, you guys, you in architecture, we're not being smart about our profession. Like we're, we're I, I think he says in it, we're, we're, he says as a profession, we're failing, basically. I don't know of any developer that has actually done modernism well at least I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of within the Indianapolis area. If you want to think truly about modernism and that kind of thoughtful architecture that we were just talking about, because there's there's no time to work through the details when you're developing at a rate at which most developers require. And there's no there's no money to think through those details either. Right. Interestingly, what what just came to mind, because you guys brought it up, was um, Jonathan Siegel. I mean, as much as I think the guy's an ass and I heard him speak and he's offensive and I don't like him and I don't like any of his attitude of how he sells that, that money is the only thing that matters. His architecture is a nice stripped down kind of well proportioned modernism. (laughs) You know, it's not bad. It's good, in fact. But he, again, he is developing it himself. So he is not an architect who's working to maximize profit for someone else. He's working to maximize profit for himself. So it is a different situation than what Rainer de Graaff is talking about. But is it? I mean, it's still only serving a happy few. It is definitely only serving a happy few. You're right. Because it can only, it's only serving those that can afford it, which is not many people. I think this goes a lot to who we choose to align ourselves with. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Architecture, it seems, as is a tool of capital. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, totally architects is. are tools of capital. I mean, we are, by and large, as we can tell from the first project, leveraged by others' money to right. build things for the we. And he says in here, and he points out pretty precisely that we build things that look modern but cheaper, cheaply. And we do yeah. it yeah. to not to to house many people, but to to basically to make the most money for the person constructing it, so that they can get the most return out of it. So there's no, there's it's pretty clear. I mean, we are we have no interest as a profession, by and large, to build better, 
to design better to impact those who pay us to to we have to influence not impact influence those who pay us to build in a way that is going to be sustainable for a long haul and even when we you know when we have done so in the past those and he points out in here in, in in the interview that those things that were built for the purpose of housing people uh, for social reasons have now been turned over into luxury apartments. And, right. you know, we in Minneapolis, for instance, what the white people here in Minneapolis have called a deemed a uh, little Mogadishu. And they don't do that endearingly. They do it quite obviously uh, racial, you know, in very racialized terms as a place to stay away from. And I've been down to Ralph Rapson's project. I mean, I've been down there. <laughs> it's a great neighborhood. It's a vibrant neighborhood. And that building has undergone with through tax credits and through historic preservation credits and all that stuff has stayed to serve a, a generally a Somali population. So it's that's one of the few examples in in this country where a modernist piece has actually stayed pretty much in, intact for the purposes of uh, housing uh, large amounts of people for the right reasons. And it, again, it was intended to be a very diverse community, but it never really turned out that way. So we're always on the side of capital. We're never on the side of people. And like I said, the first project is a really good example of how that is kind of made manifest. Yeah. So you brought up a couple of interesting comments there. One of which I was thinking about, we both were thinking of the same quote from him about the, how those, those social housing estates either get torn down because they suck or they are deemed wonderful and converted to luxury apartments that then mean they're no longer social housing. You then mentioned you're seeing that in Minneapolis. And I believe, you know, many cities could say the same thing. Those social housing pieces that stay are maintained or renovated for luxury apartments through the use of historic tax credits, which are now on the chopping block. So, (laughs) (laughs) So what does it mean from an architecture standpoint, if they do want to keep it as social housing, they're no longer going to be able to because they won't have those tax credits that help keep the price down for the end user. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. 2018 can't come quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things that, I mean, he talks about, and I've heard this not just from him lately, but from many more people that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there was a, a push in many countries, not just in the United States, but in across countries to build housing. And it was a public push. It was public money. It was, they were public projects. I was just reading about a project called Operation Breakthrough, which was one that was done by HUD in the seventies. And it was like across a dozen cities in the United States where the, the, the government used to take on the task of housing people with these massive projects. And they just, that just doesn't exist anymore. All the housing that's being built now is market housing. And yeah, that's that's a huge change for our profession because it means we can't, in some ways, try out ideas with that kind of money, which, you know, with that kind of funding, that kind of backing. And that maybe is why so many of these developer-driven market houses just look so shitty and the same because they find a formula that works and they just keep using it. It's horribly depressing to think about, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, he goes on to talk about about politics. And I think, you know, he makes a couple of great points here. Uh, how ironic is it that, that precisely the people in Britain who stood to lose most from leaving the EU voted for Brexit most emphatically? 
in that sense, I think that some decent, straightforward, accessible publication media about that phenomenon would have would, would have helped a lot. And, and and again, I think that's what he's essentially you know pointing out is that what we do here in the United States, people typically vote against their own self interest. And when they voted in Trump, they had a promise of one thing, and they're what they voted for. They're now getting everything taken away. So you wonder how sustainable that is. And the other, this is the last kind of point I think we should probably talk to. In the current power landscape with large property developers, private interests commissioning you, I think people can become the, I think the people can become the public. If architects were a little bit more open to the people in a participation, they could actually form a vital alliance to counter back, counterbalance the exclusive and private interests. I mean, I think that's, Again, it's, you know, that's what I got from this piece is that we've typically aligned ourselves with the developers. We don't align ourselves with people. And I think we're, I think for the most part, when I was looking at, I was at the AIA Minnesota conference this past week and 13 projects won Minnesota awards and six of the 13 were from one firm. You know, it's a blind submission that won awards. Three of them were from another firm. Two were from a um, very prominent uh, design architect up in Duluth, David Samala. And there wasn't, I think there was out of the 13 projects, maybe one was or two had nothing to do with people. <laughs> I mean that in, in the real sense, I mean, they, they, you know, last year MSR won an award and I think they won an uh, AIA national honor award for their family housing, affordable family housing, the Rose project. It's a beautiful development and none of these projects really dealt with people on that level. So they are really by and for a class of people or for institutions that didn't really have a connection with people. But at the same time, I look at our profession, we don't have a really good track record of doing the hard work of getting down into and answering the concerns of the people. I don't think we really connect to communities. I think we do our user groups. I think we do that kind of stuff. And it's it's kind of part and parcel, but that's not the heavy lifting that people need to have happen. That's kind of like, again, it's a, it's still, I think, on the side of capital. I still think it's on the side of politicians. It's not part and parcel of like, you know, an effort at really changing and constructively having a dialogue with a community. And I think Minnesota is trying to change that. That'll be for a future discussion. I think they're the one, probably the one, I think they're probably the single most important state chapter in the country right now, because I just saw their work plan for the next two years, and they're actually going to be probably running the national chapter soon. <laughs> uh, so you brought up something interesting there about architects working for the Capitol, and I've been talking to some friends about this recently and people on Twitter and uh, other young architects, I think uh, it kind of came up. Donna and I are both part of a strong indie group. Donna could probably give a better explanation of what the group is and what it does because I'm relatively new. But I jumped in full-fledged into it the other day because they were talking about a piece of architecture and asking about public input as it relates to it. And my response was, you know, it's hard when it's private money. Like it's, you can show up those, those ways are your ability to interact as it is going through the design process, especially in Indianapolis. There are meetings that you can show up to as a public citizen to 
be involved in it are there, but you have to know about them and you have to be willing to put in the sweat equity to do so. But it is very much like you mentioned, Ken, it is very much up to the firm as to whether they do kind of the depth and breadth of research needed to connect with the public and then make it more than just words, like make it work within that project and take it back to the owner and say, I know you want this, but we need to think about where it's going. Right. Like that's, that's a really hard ask when it's the person paying your bills and it's their money. And I think because of the recession, there are still very few firms who are willing to ask those questions. I think that we are, we're Firms are getting busier, so they're starting to have that capability to say, this is where I draw my line in the sand, or this is, I want to take the time to make those things work. But also when you get really busy, it's easy to cut out those things. So it's it's hard. I still don't have an answer for it. You know, I think my sense of it is, is kind of like this. We, we ask police officers to live in the communities that they police. Great. We have lawyers who run for office. Great. We have doctors who run for office. We have everybody under the sun making a conscious choice to make a put themselves on the line in a public service role. Architects think very small. They're not political. And I think they're afraid to be political. But So I think we need to live in some of these communities, be architects in these communities, be advocates in these communities, be political, be political, and be political. I think we need to start running things. And uh, we have, you know, we, the constituencies that we manage on a day-to-day basis on scales of, on various scales is ridiculous. It is in all, uh, in all respects, a managerial role, not unlike that of a mayor or any other public official. We have very different types of people we have to manage. We have you know, needy consultants. We have out of control contractors. We have um, we have people under us who are new to the profession. We have uh, we have users. I was just going to say we have <laughs> clueless <laughs> interns, but that would have been. But you yeah. were headed there, and you said it much more gently. <laughs> we have we have users that we you know different user groups. We have you know um, boards. We have so we have the ability to elevate our voices and and lower our profiles depending on the audience we're we're working with. So. We're already doing a lot of those things. And I think we do it better than doctors. And I think we do it better than attorneys. And I think we can be, I think we, we are somehow for some stupid fucking reason, avoidant of this really, you know, desperate need for that kind of leadership in state houses across this country. We, you know, Minnesota has had two, I don't know if he still is because he ran for mayor for uh, Minneapolis mayor, but we had two architects from opposing parties in our state legislature. I mean, that right there is, I mean, you know, it's kick ass, but we need more. And I think we got to, you know what? It's a fucking long road. It's a hard profession. But, you know, I think, you know, the people on the ground need better leadership. And I think it's only going to come from architects. I totally agree that we should be more in the public role. But this all, there's so many topics we're covering in this conversation. And this all goes back to me in a way to the first project, the the first thing we discussed, the William Caven piece, where if you were to ask a person or an architect, in what way can an architect help shape their community in a 
positive way for everyone. Most people would say, well, designing buildings, that's what architects do. And I think that that is something we can do. And we know that we're all really good at designing super sexy renderings of buildings. But then it also goes, Laura, to what you were saying about, you know, doing the hard work, uh, the not sexy work of getting down with the community, learning really what they want, figuring out what really needs to be done. That's not work we think of as what architects do. But I have been saying for a long time that it's the non-sexy, slow work that we have to do, not just in the architecture world, but in our in our political communities as well, to make things better. And I would also align it with the Grenfell Tower, the Grenfell Tower tragedy, where the fire, you know, the whole tower block burned due to some not I think it's it's obvious not very well managed code and materials issues. You know, boring things like infrastructure maintenance, no one's going to get a million tweets off of filling a crack in a foundation of a building because it needed to be stabilized. But that's the non-sexy hard work that makes our cities and communities function, right? It's all the stuff you don't you can't see or don't or don't want to have to spend time paying attention to that is what keeps us all functioning as a society. And it's not sexy and it's hard. When you were saying that your work with the community is it's the boring, non-sexy work that architects do, I immediately started thinking back to that detail that you mentioned. Like that was. Yeah, yeah, that exactly. was that was boring. That was yeah. hard. <laughs> that it, it, it was hard work to do that. And yet. So why does that not cross? Like, why do we not equate the two? We will trudge through the boring detail that we know we need to do to make our work perform and look and appear to a certain quality. But the average architect won't do that same hard, boring work to make sure that it serves the community in which it lives. Like that's, right. that doesn't right. work. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Exactly. This is what I, I think we need to remind ourselves of. And I, and I was reminded of this. I went to um, the EIA Minnesota did a, um, a mayor's forum and uh, they invited all of the candidates for mayor to come in and, and talk a little bit about, or uh, Chris Hudson of uh, AIA Minnesota Magazine um, asked them a series of questions and they responded to those questions. And it was, it was interesting in this, there isn't anyone out there running for office that has a fucking clue about what architects do. Not a clue, not a clue. They, you know what kind of clue they have? They have a 20th century clue about the profession. This profession is so much more vibrant and interesting than it was 30 years ago. Despite what anybody tells you, there is so much going on in this profession. There are professionals, non-professionals, and what I mean non-professionals is non-licensed professionals who have degrees in architecture who are doing wonderful things that have nothing to do and everything to do with architecture and who are leading things, who are creating things, who are tangentially connected to the profession. I mean, we are not just about buildings anymore. It's 20th century mindset and it is not existent anymore. So when they were talking to us, I'm like, I'm turning to people, I'm going, they don't have no clue. They have zero clue about what we do anymore. And the only way they're going to get a clue is if you start running for office, start leading, start, you know, putting your name in the hat and, and getting out there and start showing people what the profession can be about. And citizen architect, I mean, we already have that. We, we've been pounding, AIA has been pounding that nail for a good 15 years now. Citizen architect, citizen architect. I mean, start being citizen architect. Start doing that. Here, here. <laughs> so we've, uh, we've, I think we beat this 
episode to an end. <laughs> I had a lot more to talk about, but uh, we'll save that for another time, I think. So we've come to the point where people are expecting me to do this. Laura? Yes. <laughs> what are you reading and what are you listening to these days? Oh, gosh. Well, the YAF just had their 25-year summit. So as a part of that, I had to read a handful of business books. So I'm kind of giving myself a reprieve. But the business books that we had to read were interesting. Uh, one that I think you would get more out of than the other, which was uh, Blue Ocean Strategy. It's about how you create a, a business mission or plan that sets yourself apart, like how you position yourself to be different from your competitor in tangible ways. But because of doing all of that business mind, I've been giving myself a break a little bit. So I just finished uh, book one in the Outlander series. Interesting science fiction, fantasy, romance I will admit, I mean, stars picked it up, right? So like <laughs> you can get an idea, like there's some smut what? in it, but there's <laughs> smut on cable. You're kidding. <laughs> um, but there, I find it really interesting from the standpoint of this woman who finds herself in 17th century Scotland and is having to use the knowledge at her disposal to stay alive or help the people around her, which I think architects do every day. I also just started reading, albeit a couple months too late, The Influential Mind by Tally Sherritt. I got it as a early review book for a book website that I'm on. It seems really interesting. So it's about how your brain works and how you can use that generality to change people's minds. So how you phrase a question or how you do certain things, which obviously, you know, when you're trying to work with the public or if you are that architecture firm putting out a PR, like how do you, how do you make it so that the public or the city in which you're hoping to build this project finds it interesting versus thinking, oh, well, this doesn't work and just not even acknowledging it. Um, so I'm super early in that. I almost threw it away because she immediately started mentioning Trump. Um, not as a positive, but as, you know, he understands the fear factor, which is definitely something that changes a person's mind. So I'm reading those. Listening has been a lot of podcasts lately. So I'm constantly searching for new music, but I've been finding myself listening to a lot of podcasts lately. One that I think you would really love, Ken, is what Trump can teach us about con law. It's a podcast that was started by Roman Mars. So obviously, you know, 99% Invisible, love it. But he started this with a neighbor who teaches constitutional law at UC Davis. And each episode is about 15 minutes long. It's just talking about, you know, the latest thing that the administration has done and how that equates to our historical understanding of constitutional law. So like, for example, some of the recent ones have been about Trump's ability to pardon someone in a tweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on, on happier notes, I've been listening to other stuff that's somewhat still design related, but not depressing. Song Exploder is, I think, also a Radiotopia podcast, and it's it breaks down a song. So they talk to the artist or the producer and they, they break down a song and talk about the genesis of it and the process of that creation. And then 
at the end of it, they play the song in its entirety. So you can kind of hear the different pieces and you can hear kind of the, the creation of that after having listened to it. How I built this with Guy Raz uh, is pretty interesting. And I've also been recently intrigued by Monocle. 24 has a podcast called The Urbanist. Some of them are boring, but I still find myself listening because they have beautiful accents, the, the people who put it together. And some of them are really interesting. Uh, they have been going to a lot of like the city summits over in Eastern Europe lately and just talking about different pieces of architecture. Excellent. There's a book out there my fiance would recommend, and it's, um, I don't know if you've ever read Shock Doctrine by uh, Naomi Klein. I haven't. She's um, got a book coming out or out. It's called No Is Not Enough. It's about the Trump administration, so how to deal with them. And she has a very specific path. And I think she's been on a few uh, news programs to talk about what the strategy is. And it's very, uh, it's pretty clear. And it sounds like it would be a, uh, she's a great read and um, she's done uh, there's been a few documentaries about her work. So, um, Laura, thank you for coming on for the first time. Yeah, it's great to have you here. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone out there listening. And thanks to our guest, Laura Teagarden, for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with the hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please uh, consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help us uh, plan for the future. Talk to you next time.